A very good morning to all of you, those present here, those present digitally here. Uh, just before I begin with my sermon, I just want to ask for your cooperation because I know that with the mask on, you can only see not even half of my face. You can only see the upper part. And uh, you can't really tell the expression of my face. So may I just uh, challenge you to use your God-given power of imagination to imagine the most convincing expression of my face. Okay, whatever expression is going to strike you in, in the heart, and, and God is going to convict you with the truth of His Word, imagine the expression of my face, okay? Also imagine that it's a bit uh, more handsome. Lah. Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer and let's pray. Father, we rejoice at the opportunity to worship you together as a church, whether it's in person or online. Lord, you make it possible. And so we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We pray that you will speak and that the truth of your word would indeed convict our hearts in whatever direction you want. Lord, may I be faithful to the preaching of your word. May we glorify you in the attitude of our hearts as we listen. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how often do you think of God's anger? Uh, not angry expression, huh? okay, convincing expression. How often do you think of God's anger? Is it sometimes? Is it all of the time? Is it none of the time? Oh, whatever your answer is, it's very likely influenced by your church tradition, okay? How long you've been in church, uh, the people around you, what sermons have been preached, the preachers you've listened to, maybe even the media that you consume or your own family background. Now, we all know the gospel message. God sent Jesus to save us from our sins, so believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But just look at that first part of the gospel message that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. Our sins. Now, we don't need Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to tell us that we've all sinned one way or another. And we, we know we have sinned some way or another, one at one point or another in our lives. And so that creates the problem that God had to solve through Jesus Christ in the first place. Now today, we're looking at a significant event in Israel's history to show us how much of a problem that they had that even God's chosen people had. Now, Israel, God's chosen people, they had the advantage of knowing God's will, but that didn't seem to help them that much because they ended up not carrying out a lot of it. And so the big idea for today is that God's anger and discipline is tempered by His grace. Okay, so this is the takeaway message, that God's anger and discipline is tempered by His grace. Today, we're looking at God's people from 2 Kings, specifically the people of Judah. Now, just a quick recap. We all know the story of the Exodus. Uh, God's chosen people, the Israelites, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. And so we fast forward a bit, we come to the period of the kings. Okay, so you have the first king, Saul, and the second king, David, third king, Solomon. And then, oh, the kingdom is split into two, right? You have the northern kingdom of Israel, made up of uh, 10 out of the 10, sorry, 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel. 
And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, the remaining two tribes. Okay, so from the period of kings onwards, whenever we refer to Israel, it's usually the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom of Israel had consistently evil kings. And after 210 years of evil, uh, evil kings who led the people into greater evil, God finally allowed them to be defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And that was the world power at that time. And so the members of royalty, the, the skilled people, the important people, they were all exiled, they were all taken into captivity to Assyria, leaving the poorest in the land a remnant. Okay, so this is known as the first exile, a very significant point in Israel's history. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings, but eventually they got worse and worse. And 120 years after the first exile, God allows them to be defeated by the new world power at this time, which is Babylon. And so tens of thousands of people are taken into captivity to Babylon, and this is known as the second exile, okay, the second major event in in Israel's history. And today's passage that was read to us just now describes the events that mark the beginning of the second exile. So that's where we're at, okay? The second exile, uh, the, the people taken into captivity to Babylon, this, we are around the events that kick off the second exile. Jerusalem would be finally destroyed about 19 years later, okay? So it's, it's really lumped in around that period of time. Now, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, God's people are allowed by the new world power at that time, so the world powers keep changing. At this time, the world power is Persia, and they allow God's people to return back to their land to rebuild the temple and to start again as a nation. Okay, so all this is recorded in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and a whole bunch of prophets. Okay, so that's lots of history in the Bible. If you ever try reading the Bible, you know that there is so much history in it. It's like reading a history book a lot of times, like, like reading a history textbook. And so if you're trying to read the Bible, you may be wondering, why do I need to know all this history? I'm not going to sit for any history exam, right? This isn't going to be in my SPM results. Uh, why bother with things that happened thousands of years ago in a land that is so far away from Malaysia, what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with my life and my circumstances? Well, the writer George Santayana wrote this famous quote, that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Okay, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, today, many of the measures that have been put in place to combat the, the coronavirus pandemic, some of the things that we are practicing, social distancing, uh, you know, not being in public places together, crowded together, uh, masks and uh, hygiene and all that, that, all these measures have come from studying outbreaks in the past, specifically the Spanish flu and SARS. And so, we learn from the tragedies of the past to avoid them in the future or to, to contain them in the future. And so, this whole concept of remembering the past so that you don't repeat it is the primary motivation of the authors of these history books in the Bible. They were written them sometime either 
near the second exile or sometime after, but it's around that period. And they, they wrote this history so that people would know the events that led up to these disastrous events. Okay, so they would know what were the sequence of the events that led to these tragedies. And so if you read through from the first kings after Solomon, so Jeroboam, king of Israel, and Rehoboam, king of Judah, those two kings all the way until the last kings, Hosea of Israel and Zedekiah of Judah, one very common phrase that pops up through the, the whole length of the kings, one very common phrase that pops up is, this king or that king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this leads us to God's anger. Now, verse 20 of today's passage tells us that it was to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence of God being angry. In fact, even Christians, we don't like the idea of God being angry. Nowadays, we tend to talk around the subject of, of God's anger by talking about his holiness, okay, to, to imply his anger without directly mentioning it so people don't get offended. And so in this culture of hypersensitivity a lot of times, we especially avoid using words like hell, judgment, wrath, okay? Because these terms tend to be associated with all those, you know, those hellfire and brimstone sermons that, that used to be preached uh, until quite recently. They were very, very popular. Uh, and, and pretty much it's about you guys are useless, you guys are horrible, you guys are sinful, you should be ashamed of yourselves, you're going to hell, and you know, that's it. It's just, it's just that nothing about God's love, nothing about God's mercy, nothing about His forgiveness, nothing about grace. And so, whenever we, we talk about these words, hell, judgment, wrath, we're, we're always thinking about those kinds of sermons. And so we're super sensitive about it in today's day and age. And so many today also dismiss God's anger as a, a very backward, very old-fashioned understanding of God. You know, if, if you talk about a God who gets angry, uh, you are regressive. You're not progressive. You know, you're very old-fashioned. You're stuck in the, the ancient times and all that. Uh, because they, they think that, you know, if, if you think that God is angry, oh, that means he's petty. He's temperamental like the Greek pantheon of gods that had all those dysfunctional families, uh, very easy to sue, hey, you know, that kind. And so, either that, or they dismiss God's anger to be an Old Testament thing and not a New Testament thing, nothing to do with the God of the New Testament. But God does not change. The, the God of the Old Testament who commanded Adam and Eve not to eat that fruit is the same God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the penalty of sin. He is the same God. He didn't change shifts with some other more mellow God waiting to be tagged in between the book of Malachi and Matthew in the intertestamental period. He is the same God through and through, from the beginning of history all the way until now and to the end. And so the fact of the matter is, God does get angry kind expression on my face right now, okay? God does get angry. He gets angry at evil and sin. This is half of the gospel. Without God's holy anger towards sin, 
there's no need for salvation. There's no need for Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross. There's no need for us to repent and accept Jesus. So it doesn't make sense for us to expect God to never be angry. Now, every good father would feel anger if something evil was done to his children. I'm sure those of you who are parents, you can imagine somebody doing something evil to your children, something horrendous, you would get angry. Or if your own children did something evil themselves to other people and they committed some heinous act, you too would get angry. And so if a father felt no anger if something evil was done to his child or his child did something evil, if they felt no anger and said, you know, ayah, children like that, lah, children nowadays, uh, they would not be a good father if that was their reaction to evil. And so if God is a good father, uh, a good God who cannot stand evil at all, why would he not feel anger when his children are committing evil against each other, when his children are committing evil against themselves and bringing themselves into greater harm? Why would he not feel anger? Now, here's where we need to be careful. Because even though God's anger is very much part of his character, it is not the entirety of his character. Just because he gets angry does not mean he is angry all the time. He gets angry, yes, but he also shows mercy, he shows compassion, he shows forgiveness, he shows loving kindness, patience, long-suffering, so on and so forth. Now, often the same people that God gets angry with, when they humble themselves and repent, you know, he shows all the other positive things to them as well. All this forgiveness and grace and loving kindness. Our God is not a perpetually grumpy and sulky God who's just waiting for us to mess up so that he can shout at us. You know, those are our experiences, our negative experiences of human anger that we project unto God. You know, when we think of anger, we usually think of very negative, very tense, very uh, unpleasant things because we see the human expressions of anger that comes with all the sin, all the rage, all the meanness, all the bitterness. But God is unlike us. He is always good, always fair. And so even when he gets angry, his anger is always good. His anger is always fair. He cannot sin in his anger unlike us. Okay, so God, God's anger in protecting us from harming ourselves or others, okay, that seems to make sense. But what about today's passage where it is quite clear, it seems to be quite clear that God is the source of harm to His people. I mean, look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 2. The Lord sent raiders to destroy Judah. Uh, verse 3, these things happened at the Lord's command. Uh, verse 20, he thrust them from his presence. And then Jeremiah, the, the prophet around this time, also prophesied that Judah would experience God's judgment through Babylon. He, he tells the people, don't resist, surrender, because these things are from the Lord. Uh, and God also says through Jeremiah that even if Moses and Samuel stood before him, it won't dissuade him from the judgment that he was bringing on Judah. And so, it seems pretty obvious that God is responsible for the things that are making His people suffer. Uh, but here's where we need to look at something else, another aspect of God's anger, which is 
His discipline, God's discipline. Now, the book of Proverbs is full of wisdom that talks about the necessity of disciplining children. You know, if you don't, ra- uh, you don't uh, raise up your kid well or you don't correct them, they're going to become fools or whatever. I mean, we don't need the Bible to tell us that. Lah. You just go to any restaurant, you see a kid screaming about their iPad being taken away so that they have to be forced to eat and all that. We know that discipline is very, 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 very important in a child's upbringing. And even when you're an adult, you still need some level of discipline, right? Or else you become this blob that just sits in front of the TV. Uh, so discipline is an important thing. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 has a whole section on God disciplining His children because He loves them. And Revelations 3.19 also says something along the same lines. God disciplines His children because He loves them. And so Hebrews chapter 12 talks about entertaining hardship and suffering as discipline. And so we see here that although God is not the source of evil and sin, He isn't the one who is going around torturing people and killing people. Humans do that. He allows them to happen in controlled and limited ways in the grand plan of His greater purposes, His very good purposes. And one of those good purposes is His discipline because He loves us. Now, why is there a need for God's discipline? Firstly, we see God needs to discipline us because there needs to be consequences of sin. We see in verses 3 to 4 of today's passage uh, about Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah, he seems to be responsible for God's anger and discipline to defeat Judah and bring about the exile and all that. So if you read today's passage, it seems to be this guy's fault, okay? Manasseh, one of the kings. And so Manasseh was a king of Judah. He went beyond the evil of the other kings before him. His father was one of the the good kings, okay? So his father was good king Hezekiah. Uh, He brought about many reforms from the idolatries previously. And then after Manasseh took the throne, he reversed those reforms, okay? So he, he didn't just commit idolatry, he committed idolatry with the gods that, you know, required child sacrifice, that sort of idolatry. He also brought idols into the Lord's temple. So it wasn't enough to uh, lead the, the people into worshipping idols on high places and other places. He brought these idols into the Lord's temple to worship them there, okay? Just think with innocent blood, which is probably the, the, the blood of the priests and the prophets who resisted him. And so Manasseh is uh, probably one of the most horrible, you know, horrible kings that you can think of. But interesting twist, he is the only Israelite or, or Judean king who is recorded as repenting in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Okay, as far as I can recall, he's the only Israelite or Judean king who started out bad and repented. And so after he's captured by Assyria, he repents, he's allowed to go back, he, he is king again, and then he turns from his evil ways. But although he repented from his sin, his legacy remained. You see, as a king, you lead your people into whatever. Okay, you, you make the laws, you tell them what to do, what not to do. And so when he set the example of idolatry and evil, 
the people followed. And after he repented, the people didn't follow. They persisted. And so the people of Judah were led into greater sin. Even after Manasseh died, they continued their evil ways. After that, you have King Josiah who uh, uh, brought about more reform, but even after that, the people also continued into sin. And so Manasseh's sin alone is probably not the cause of God's judgment to the point where he's not willing to forgive uh, and bring about the exile. But Manasseh's sin is so deplorable and its effects are so long-lasting on the people, it became a representation of the worst of Judah's sins. And so all these sins, together with all of Israel and Judah's sins up to that point, had the consequences of breaking God's law. Just very quickly, God had a covenant with His people, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and so His people disobeyed God's law so many times, they deserved the curse, the curses, the ultimate curse being exiled. But why couldn't God just completely overlook all that sin? Why couldn't He just, you know, turn a blind eye and I love you, la. Why? Why did there need to be consequences? Well, look at the countries where law is not enforced or certain laws are not enforced. Did you know that in Thailand, prostitution is illegal since 1960? And I was reading just recently about how the, the lockdown in Thailand is severely affecting their economy. Uh, yes, because of tourism, but also prostitution makes up about 10% of their gross domestic product. Uh, there's a law there against it, but it's not enforced. There are no consequences to violating it, at least up to recently. And so, no one would take the law or no one would take the justice system uh, in Thailand seriously when it comes to the sex trade. You know, nobody would feel fearful about about engaging in those kind of things because there's no enforcement. And so, completely overlooking wrongdoing is the same as discipline without consequences. Totally ineffective. If you have a child who is misbehaving and you tell him, I warn you, uh, you do that one more time, uh, this is going to happen to you, and then they do it one more time, and then you don't do anything, they're going to do it three, four, five, six. 10,000 more times. So there needs to be consequences of sin or else, uh, there needs to be consequences of actions or else discipline is ineffective. Second reason why God needed to discipline His people was because God needed to intervene to save them from themselves, from the path that they were already on. You think about it, the nations of both Israel and Judah, they were on a rapid downward trend of increasingly evil kings. And so, if God had left them to their own devices and didn't intervene with the exile to capture them to Assyria and Babylon and all that, they would probably continue down a path that would result in them being entirely wiped out. Because, even though they were exiled, there was a remnant that was brought back and the nation was able to start again. There were still consequences of sin. A lot of the tribes had been lost and they went through great suffering, but they were not wiped out. They were not annihilated. They were able to be redeemed. Now, sometimes you allow your children to continue down a path that you know is bad, 
so that they would learn things the hard way, right? You tell them, uh, don't go and poke the dog while he's sleeping. And then they insist. Every time they go, you say, don't poke the dog while he's sleeping. But then they keep wanting to go and do it. And so you let them laugh. Then they go and poke. And then, <laughs> and then they learn. So sometimes you allow that to happen. But sometimes you step in and you initiate and you cause suffering on their behind or on their phone privileges or whatever your brand of discipline is because you know that if they continue down that path, they will be badly scarred or irredeemably injured or worse. Right? If they are going to run into a busy highway, you're not going to say, uh, let them see, uh, let them taste their, their medicine. <laughs> right? You will intervene, you will stop them and you will inflict suffering on them so that they remember before they go through even greater suffering. So we must remember that discipline intends for the greater good of the one who is being disciplined. Without the intention of greater good, it's just abuse, huh? okay? But with God, He intends for the greater good of His people when He disciplines them. With discipline, the short term is always unpleasant for the sake of a much more pleasant long term. Uh, if you look at Israel's history, after they return from the exile, God's discipline actually works. I mean, if, if you look at from the time they returned uh, from the exile in Babylon all the way until Jesus' time, they did not struggle with idolatry uh, in, in terms of worshipping the idols of the other nations. They still had sin. They still had sins of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. You know, Jesus would address that. But their idolatry of other gods of the nations, they, they didn't have such a huge problem already. God's discipline worked. Uh, one thing that we need to recognize about discipline is that it does not always mean punishment. Now, sometimes when we go through hardship in our lives, we, we, we think that God is punishing us for something. Okay? And we, we beat ourselves up and, oh, uh, last time I did this, and so now I'm going through suffering, uh, God must be causing it to punish me. But all our punishments for our sins have been laid at the feet of Jesus at the cross. We are not under the same covenant of curses for disobedience as the Israelites were. All our punishments, including death for sin, is upon Jesus. And so when we go through suffering, we may face the consequences, the natural consequences of our sin, but they are not God's retribution and punishment for that sin because that has been dealt with by Jesus when we accepted him through faith. The Greek word for discipline, uh, pedevo, and Hebrew word for discipline, musa, these words are mainly translated into the, the meaning of uh, training and correction, okay, and, and nurture. And so it's about making, it, it gives you the idea of making somebody better, making somebody stronger. It's not about retribution. It does not have that element of uh, retribution. Punishment may be an aspect of it, but discipline in itself, that word, is mainly about training and correction. And so the next time you experience hardship, endure it as discipline, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says, 
Consider how God may be training you up, how He may be building you up for your own good, for His greater purposes. So it's important to recognize God's discipline for what it is, that it is discipline intended for our good. Because when we lose sight of God's hand in our hardships, when we lose sight of the aspect of God's discipline and His sovereignty and all that, we usually just feel the pain and we don't understand. We, we don't understand the point of the pain. We don't understand the purpose of the pain. We just feel the pain and we just ask God, why is this happening? Why is this happening? But if we can keep our spiritual eyes open to reflect and examine how the hardships we go through can possibly be God putting us through discipline, we can face that hardship to be tested beyond what we can bear, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and that there is both meaning and a good outcome from those hardships. It is not meaningless suffering. Okay, we've been talking about God's anger, God's discipline. Time to talk about the other half of the equation, His grace. Now, the Israelites were given many, many opportunities to repent, and God was slow in His anger in carrying out His judgment on the people. This is evidence of His grace. You see, we don't operate under a karma system. Uh, we don't earn points by doing good things and then lose those points for doing bad things. None of us can earn a second chance. None of us can earn our way back into God's favour by doing anything. For the Israelites, the moment they broke their covenant with God, all that they deserved was judgment. It was very fair. They agreed to the covenant wholeheartedly. And so, when they, the moment they broke His covenant, and they disobeyed his commands, they were already applicable to be sent into exile. The, the very first year of the judges, they could have been sent into exile already. But many, many times, God relents from the impending judgments because of their repentance. Okay, so for example, uh, after Moses went to Mount Sinai, uh, covenant of the law on the tablets, the people down there wondering what happened to this fellow, Aaron led them into sin, right? Golden calf, okay? Moses came down, what have you guys done? Oh no, and God is like, go wipe you out, horrible people. Uh, and Moses interceded for them and said, no, <laughs> if you do that, what about the other nations? How would they look at you? And so God said, okay, fine, I won't, okay? And then uh, Jonah and the city of Nineveh, Jonah was sent to proclaim, repent, uh, the, you know, destruction is going to come on Nineveh. And the Ninevites repented, and Jonah Marajok, because they repented, he didn't think it was fair. Anyway, uh, God didn't bring about the destruction that he promised. And so on and so forth. Many, 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 many times, God was going to bring about deserved judgment, but he relented because of repentance. All these are examples of God's grace at work, undeserved mercy. Nothing deserved at all. Uh, in fact, if we look beyond Israel's history, you look into the whole of mankind's history, you might say that every single day that passes before Jesus comes again to bring about final judgment is God's grace extended to sinful humankind because the wages of sin is death. 
and that happened at the very beginning. And so every moment until Jesus comes again to bring about final judgment, this is God's grace at work, perpetually ongoing. And so each day brings those who don't believe in Jesus the opportunity to believe in Jesus, to be spared from judgment through faith in Jesus. And so that's why evangelism is so important. Every opportunity to share the gospel with others, that's a limited opportunity. One day, that opportunity will be lost forever. Either because you die, or they died, or Jesus came again. And so, limited opportunity, we are living each day in God's grace. Coming back to the Israelites, if you lean back and you take in the, the whole big picture of their history, you can see that God didn't just extend His grace only when they repented. He also delayed judgment when they didn't repent. Uh, from the very beginning that Israel was formed as a nation, okay, they, when they uh, calling on Abraham into... Uh, finally, they settle into the promised land. They are officially a nation. Immediately after that is the period of the judges, where you know, the generation that uh, didn't go through the wilderness, the generation after that forgot God and totally you know, uh, sinned worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. After that is the period of kings, which went worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, you have some bright spots here and there, but ultimately, the, the entire nation and people of Israel it just goes downwards, right? And so, from the period of the judges to the second exile of Judah, that is how long God put up with very consistent disobedience with this nation. That's a period of about 750 years. Okay, put that into perspective for 2020, for, for this year. 750 years ago was around Marco Polo's time. It was before the Renaissance. It was before the bubonic plague, the first pandemic. <laughs> it was before John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English 750 years ago. Okay? So, 750 years. How, how many of you, how many parents here can put up with their kids' nonsense and give them second chances for seven and a half months? Seven and a half weeks. Also cannot, cannot tahan already. You do this one more time, I'm going to, you're going to kenal already. Okay, so God could have, like, like I said, He could have sent them into exile from the very first year they started misbehaving. But He chose to give them opportunities to repent, to turn back to Him. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32 tells us He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. And so He prolongs and He gave them many, many, many chances. And so we can see that God's grace was an extraordinarily long-suffering grace. So we mustn't think that God suddenly Marajo got all angry and you know just flipped, flipped the table at his people uh, just because he, he song. Uh, his grace is recorded time and time again over this period of 700, 750 years at least. And that's just his people Israel not including the rest of human's history. And because of God's grace, Israel had hope even though they went through the ultimate curse of exile. Now, the prophets would warn against, you know, unrepentance and all that, but once they were exiled, the prophets started preaching a different message. Instead of judgment and warning, 
it became about comfort and hope. And so we can see by the end of Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah that because of God's grace, God's people were eventually restored to their land and the temple was rebuilt. They were given a second chance at being a nation. And God didn't just restore Israel as a nation. He would later bring about the Messiah from this nation. And for the line of David, because of God's grace, it survived the exile, extended all the way to the birth of Jesus. And for all of us Gentiles, well, because of God's grace, we were grafted into God's family through faith in Jesus. And so friends, please don't look at God's anger and discipline uh, as the only things. Don't just focus on, oh, there's only anger and discipline and that's it because that is not a complete picture of his character. Do not forget his grace. His grace is motivated by love for us. And so when hardship comes, remember to see the bigger picture. Remember to see how God has shown his grace to his people and to humanity time and time and time again. And remember that our God of grace and love is in control, and we can put our hope in that sure and certain knowledge. And so, in conclusion, friends, to wrap up our message today, may I encourage you to know that God is in control. He disciplines us for our good. He will not allow us to be tested beyond what we can bear. Be hopeful that your hardship has a good meaning in light of God's picture. Your suffering is never meaningless. Nothing is ever wasted from God's perspective. And do thank God for His grace and the atoning work of Jesus. Remember, we did not deserve, we had no entitlement, no right to any second chances. Thank God for His grace. May you allow your service and love of others to flow out of that gratitude for God and His grace. Let us pray. Holy God and God of grace, we know that the things that you allow us to experience as part of your good discipline are never pleasant. Yet we trust in your good character to know better than we do, to see further than we do. And so grant us faith, Lord, that we might hope in your sovereignty and goodness and see things from your big picture. We pray for the strength and the perseverance to go through hardships in life, that we might come out of them stronger, wiser. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we come to a time of reflection and discussion. As usual, we want to give people the opportunity to, uh, over the course of the week, to discuss, either with your families or in your small groups, or to just spend some moments on your own reflecting. And so, just some questions for us to consider. Firstly, what are some common things that you hear about God's anger? Do you disagree? Do you agree? Uh, why? Okay. Some common things you hear about God's anger. Do you agree or disagree? Why? Secondly, what was one time that you experienced God's discipline? And how did you recognize that it was God's discipline? was one time you experienced God's discipline? How did you recognize that it was God's discipline? And thirdly, 
What is one area of your life where you can see God's grace amidst hardship? How does that make you feel? One area of your life where you can see God's grace amidst the hardship that you're facing? How do you feel about that? I leave these questions with you to ponder and reflect and discuss.